from Movendi International. I am Mike Dunbier. This is the Alcohol Issues podcast. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, March 17th, with final edits done on March 22nd. Welcome to the 14th episode of the Alcohol Issues podcast. This week we focus on the World Health Organization, big alcohol self-regulation and the development of a global action plan on alcohol. For the 14th episode of the Alcohol Issues podcast, we welcome today Paula O'Brien, Tim Stockwell and Robin Room. Together with Kate Valence, they wrote an editorial in the latest addiction journal with the title WHO should not support alcohol industry co-regulation of public health labeling. Paula O'Brien is an associate professor at Melbourne Law School. She specializes in public health law in her research and teaching. Associate Professor O'Brien researches in the area of public health law with a focus on the regulation of corporate conduct to protect human health, international economic law and human health, and the regulation of healthcare systems. Professor Robin Room of the Center for Alcohol Policy Research in Australia is a sociologist who has directed alcohol and other drug research centers in the United States, Canada, Sweden and Australia. He has been an advisor for the World Health Organization since 1975 and has received awards for scientific contributions in the United States, Sweden and Australia. Professor Room has worked on social, cultural and epidemiological studies of alcohol, other drugs and gambling behavior and problems and studies of social responses to alcohol and other drug problems and of the effects of policy changes. Professor Tim Stockwell is the director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research and a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Victoria in Canada. He has published over 400 research papers, book chapters and monographs plus several books on prevention and treatment issues. Professor Stockwell's research interests include prevention of alcohol and other drug-related harm, regulatory policies to reduce alcohol-related harm, measurements of alcohol consumption and related harms. Hello everybody, good morning and good afternoon and uh, thank you for making time and for actually coming on the podcast to discuss your editorial in addiction um, about WHO should not support alcohol industry co-regulation of public health labeling. Uh, I'm really excited to discuss um, this issue with you like, like the specific issue that you wrote about in the editorial but maybe we have time also to look at the bigger picture because I think the editorial also touches upon some bigger picture items. To start us off, I wanted to ask you, why did you decide to write this editorial? Can you just share your thought process, please? So we saw the uh, draft working paper for the development of the alcohol action plan, and we were quite concerned that alcohol labeling had been 
picked out as an area where industry co-regulation would be permitted when there were other aspects of the action, the draft working paper, which were quite strong on trying to ring fence the influence of the industry. And we thought, given what we know about alcohol labelling, that that was a very unwise path to take. Thanks, Paula. And I think we'll discuss a little bit um, why you think the co-regulatory approach is unwise. But Robin and Tim, would you like to add anything from your perspective why it's important to address this topic in, in an editorial in addiction? I would just echo Paula's concern, um, knowing the track record of the kinds of um, maneuvers industry groups have um, undertaken to prevent consumers being informed about the risks of their pro products. I mean, there's, there's the, some of these are referenced in the editorial, um, but there's examples from Australia, from Europe, from North America, of fierce opposition to the existence of labels, um, the contents, particularly if it's a hard hitting message that like a cancer warning, and of course, that's probably the most important warning of all because people are so unaware, by and large, of the cancer risks from drinking alcohol. Um, so it, it would be a shame to dilute any messaging. And we know the kind of messaging the industry opts for when given a choice. It's very vague. If anything, it might seem to be promoting their product rather than warning consumers about risks. Yeah, it... It's um, Paula in particular uh, among us has spent quite some time looking at trade agreements uh, yeah. in the whole area of trade agreements where the industry has been pushing essentially for limiting governments in terms of what they can put on the label or whether it goes on the label or can only be put on a supplementary uh, label. Um, and also in the um, international body that considers issues of how uh, uh, recommendations to countries on how uh, products, uh, food products should be labeled. Uh, the industry has essentially been fighting uh, a successful battle up to now to keep alcohol from having even the kinds of re requirements that are put for other things that we take into our body, the foods. Yeah, so I think now you have um, already outlined some of the issues. I think the, the trade, so the international trade agenda and how the alcohol industry navigates this. I think, Tim, your experience in Canada with the study, I think that you were involved in that the yeah. alcohol industry tried to shut down um, in terms of um, preventing, preempting cancer warning labels. Um, and then, of course, uh, what Paula talked about this, th that it's just an unwise approach to um, uh, go for co-regulation uh, in terms of labeling. So if we do it systematically, could you just explain um, for the listeners what is co-regulation in principle? We can also read it in the editorial, but if you could uh, just explain that, please. So sometimes the term co-regulation is used, but it's really a form of industry self-regulation. And the reason I say that is that industry self-regulation is not one thing. 
it can take many different forms. And one form of it, if you like, is co-regulation. And so co-regulation involves government doing one part of the regulating and industry doing the other. So you might have the industry sets the rules and the government then enforces them. So if the, the industry doesn't follow them, the government might be responsible for investigating and um, deciding what punishment should be imposed. Or you could have it the other way around. The government could set the rules and then the industry has the job of monitoring and enforcing the rules. So in many parts of the world, we see these kinds of systems and they're often called self-regulatory. And But when we dig into them, there's often government involvement in small ways. But the key message is that in these regulatory systems, the industry plays a very big part. So not just as the people subject to the regulation, but actually in making the regulation work. Mm -hmm. And what we know in alcohol is that industry self-regulation tends not to work at all. People will probably think about maybe some other industries where there's self-regulation and it might work actually quite well in other places, but it does not work in relation to alcohol. What are other alcohol policy areas where self-regulation has failed? So the very key one is alcohol marketing. So many countries adopt a self-regulatory model for alcohol marketing. And again, when you dig into the detail, there might be some government involvement. So another form of self-regulation, which is also called co-regulatory, is where industry might write the rules, but they have to be approved by government. And then the government hands them back to the industry and then the industry has to administer the self-regulatory scheme and it has to hear about breaches. So alcohol marketing is the other key example because that is an area where government's marketing And speech is an area where governments are often very reluctant uh, to regulate. Um, and so they tend to leave it to the industry. But again, across many countries, and there's you know, quite a lot of writing now about how these self-regulatory schemes actually do not um, particularly protect minors from alcohol marketing um, and also don't protect the general community from messages around the normalization of alcohol. Yeah, and it's very interesting to listen to you, uh, Paula, and to just reflect about uh, what uh, co-regulation then actually means mm -hmm. and just to uh, think about this evidence that we know about um, self-regulation self failures in marketing as you're explaining it. I, I find it difficult to explain for myself why this text why this suggestion is in this working document that you have analyzed now and Tim and, and Robin do we have any idea why would WHO on their own put this into uh, the working document if it's the case as Paula said earlier that in in other issues they are really trying to ring fence so trying to keep the industry at bay and here the evidence as Paula says is so clear actually so so Do you have any idea or is it just speculation why the WHO would um, include this kind of suggestion? Well, if you look at where they in included it, uh, the only place I could find, um, Paula, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong about, about this, is in on page 14 of that document that we're citing. At the bottom of it, they say, 
uh, refrain from promoting drinking, eliminate and prevent any positive health claims and ensure within co-regulatory frameworks, the availability of easily understood consumer information. So they're basically they're accepting co-regulation rather than uh, saying anything uh, of what Paula is saying about it, but they're not, they're not actually proposing co-regulation. They're saying if there is a co-regulatory framework, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, I think uh, the editorial is essentially arguing that, um, look, uh, it's time for WHO to tackle co-regulation head on in terms of uh, the experience we've had in a number of countries with it in this particular area. Paula, is that a fair statement? <laughs> I think so, but I also think that by actually specifically allowing co-regulation yeah. where countries maybe don't have any labelling regime around alcohol, for example, so and that's something to come for them. What it is opening up, I think, is that the industry will say to those countries, well, the WHO makes way for co-regulation, industry co-regulation of alcohol labelling. So, look, let us come in and we can run it in your country. And, you know, that will probably be preceded by attempts to stop any regulation, but, you know, the plan B will always be, well, well look, if, you, if we really have to do this, let us do this. And in some ways we saw exactly that in Australia with the pregnancy warning labels. The government yeah. decided they wanted to move on pregnancy warning labels in 2011, and the industry um, appeared and said, we're going to run this pregnancy labelling scheme, so let us do it for you and we'll make it work. Now, we know it didn't work, and I think, as Tim said, there's actually enough evidence already of these industry labelling schemes not working. So what should be avoided in the future is that other countries say, well, let's give co-regulation a go. And we want to avoid industry being able to say to countries, let's give co-regulation a go. Because even if down the track countries might swap over to a, a, a wholly government regulatory scheme, we've got delays of years and years. And also we might have countries that never move past co-regulation. They spend all their policy energy, if you like, getting the co-regulatory scheme in place. And so then there's that policy energy dissipates. And so then, you know, it may take many years or, or never that they actually get round again to regulating properly. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's potentially harmful to have it in there because it's a, it's a tick against industry co-regulation that actually shouldn't be there because of what we know about industry co-regulation already. Yeah, it's like an unforced error. Yeah. <laughs> could, could I just chime in a, 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 a moment? Because I'm wondering, again, it's perhaps speculation, but there's probably huge pressure there must be on the powers that be in WHO from member countries, many of the, whom have major exporting and you know, businesses and production of different kinds of alcohol, huge pressure historically to have weak alcohol policies. And there may be a sense where if you're going to concede anywhere, well, what's the weakest line? We're not going to concede on pricing and availability, but this labeling stuff, the evidence is so weak and, and you know, it's just an educational thing. If we're going to concede anywhere, however, 
I think people are waking up these days that the evidence has actually firmed in some areas that it can actually work specifically of itself, but it has huge symbolic importance for the whole of alcohol policy in general, because the message sense, if you don't have labels, is that it's not important. I mean, I think people have some intrinsic trust that governments will look out for us and our health. And if there's something seriously nasty in this product, especially in Canada and the States where governments are involved in the distribution and sale of alcohol directly, you'd think they'd tell us. <laughs> so um, in fact, um, when that is not happening and citizens are not being informed about risks, it makes a very hard environment to make effective policy on the things that really count even more than labeling. Labeling is important, but pricing availability is more so. So the whole environment I think is um, softened and made easy when consumers are not being given their, afforded their rights to know the risks of consuming a particular product. In the editorial, you write about uh, three reasons why this uh, proposed co-regulatory approach to alcohol labeling is misguided. And I think, Tim, you have already mentioned at least one of them um, a, little, a little while ago. But I, I wanted to just uh, have this, uh, you know, complete picture of what are the other reasons um, why this is uh, misguided. In addition to that, we actually know the track record of the alcohol industry, so they are not actually serious about this. Tim, do you want to talk about the emerging evidence? You touched on upon a little bit there, but that was our first reason that we've got this new firming up of the I, evidence. Okay, sure, I can have a go at that. I mean, there's emerging evidence mm. on labelling for a range of products. I mean, tobacco, foodstuffs and, and alcohol. And until recently, most of the research had been done in North America, in USA, on a natural policy experiment um, where, you know, these little black and white labels were introduced, I think it was 1989, and it was a big deal. And some research was done. It didn't appear to have much measurable effect on consumption. There were some other behaviors, like talking about the messages, seemed to have some brief impact. But it was broadly assumed on the basis of that, this is not a big deal, and let's fight on other fronts. But more recently, um, and I think the whole awareness of the cancer issue has been leading the concern, the fact that so many people are unaware, like in many countries, 70, 75% of the population are unaware of that, and the evidence that people believe they should be informed. And recently in Canada, we did get the chance to do a little natural experiment of introducing new labels, really bright color, not the little like little black and white ones, but bright yellow and red with messages that we tested with all sorts of focus groups with local residents and stakeholder groups to give impactful messages. One was on cancer, one was on the national low risk drinking guidelines and one on the number of standard drinks in the bottles. And they were in English and French and every bottle apart from a small number where you couldn't actually fix the label on because of the size or the shape of the bottle, like 98% of um, bottles sold in this main liquor store in Whitehorse in the Yukon of north of Canada. They were all had these bright yellow and red labels. And 
The industry actually discovered this and this, these cancer labels only ran for a month, but we were able to get back in the field and do follow-up surveys. And lo and behold, we found that messages really resonated and people said that if they recalled seeing the labels, it made them think twice about their drinking. They were more likely to say they would cut down. But the sales data indicated a measurable reduction in sales from the 97, 8% of containers that were labeled, whereas those that weren't labeled showed a small increase. And they were both significant. So this is kind of quite striking evidence from variety of data sources of behavior change from labeling. There was also strong public support um, for the, the, well, there was good public support. It wasn't huge, but it was more than the opposition. So overall, um, it, it appeared and given the evidence that um, if people are aware of the cancer risk, they're more likely to support other effective policies, and there's evidence on that from the UK and Australia, as well as Canada, um, there's quite a strong case for them being important in their own right, but also for creating a favourable context for effective policy making to improve public health. Yeah, thanks, uh, Tom. I think this Yukon example is really exciting. And maybe, um, Paula, we can talk a little bit about what uh, Robin mentioned earlier the international trade arena and what the alcohol industry is doing there in terms of um, what Robin just mentioned briefly, uh, actually limiting the space for governments to regulate uh, alcohol labeling um, domestically. So if you could explain this a little bit more, um, what's happening in, in this space that not many people are aware of. Sure. Um, so, so there's an organization called the World Trade Organization, which many uh, listeners might have heard of, and it sets rules about international trade. And none of its rules are specific to alcohol, so but it regulates trade in goods. Um, and many countries who are members of the WTO um, raise concerns with each other when one of the countries wants to introduce alcohol labeling policy change. Um, and so there's quite a bit of pressure um, put on countries who want to introduce labelling change, um, particularly a country like Thailand, who um, in 2010 really made the first major move, or we should say proposal around alcohol labelling change. So it's a proposal that's never come to fruition, but Thailand in 2010 said it wanted to add graphic warning labels to alcohol. And these uh, were the type of warning labels that we see on tobacco in many places. So photos, um, quite um, graphic and confronting photos um, with some text underneath. Um, they were to take up 40% of the label space um, and they were to be rotated very regularly to make sure that consumers didn't um, become immune to the messages. So Thailand was confronted in the one of the WTO committees um, with lots of opposition, including from Canada, including from Australia, the EU, the US, Mexico, um, New Zealand. So um, a, a number of key exporting countries. Um, and Thailand eventually backed down on the labels. And there's, there's nothing on the record that says 
we backed down because of the pressure in the WTO. But the pressure was very considerable and it probably played at least some part in the decision of Thailand. Um, but Thailand's move in putting these labels on the table um, was still significant because since that time, we've actually seen quite a bit of movement around labeling. Um, so WTO forums are often used by members to put some pressure on other countries around their labeling laws. That's certainly the case also with Ireland, which has proposed putting on warnings about cancer. Um, and there's been a lot of pressure put on them in the WTO. And so far, those labels haven't come uh, into being in Ireland, although I expect we will eventually see that. But you might hear from what I'm saying that what often happens is about delay. So using these trade law arguments and, in fact, other legal arguments uh, to basically delay the introduction of the, of the labels. Um, the other thing that's happening in the trade space is that listeners might know that countries can also agree, um, reach new agreements, and it might be between two countries or three countries or a smaller set of countries. Most of the world's countries are involved in the WTO. Um, and in these what we call regional trade agreements, there have actually been some specific provisions about alcohol added. Um, and one of them is to to provide for what we call supplementary labelling of alcohol. Um, and supplementary labelling means that a producer doesn't need to put a labelling message on the main label. They can put it on uh, a sticker, if you like, and put it on some place on the bottle or the container. And so our concern about this law, which has actually been rolled out into a number of subsequent trade agreements, um, it's first started in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which turned into the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, and it's now been found in a number of other agreements, is that producers will start squeezing warning messages into some obscure place on the label. So down the side of the bottle, so it becomes hard to read because it's the text is not running horizontally. Um, maybe a tag around the neck of the bottle that's very easy for a consumer to remove because they don't want to see that confronting message. Um, maybe on the cap on the top of the bottle or some other place. So this kind of law basically defeats the evidence that Tim's talking about about what makes labels work. Um, and so that's a new strand um, of activity in the trade area that's concerning because of its possibility of being proliferated across all these smaller trade agreements between countries or between groups of countries. Yeah, thanks. That's super helpful. And I'm very impressed that you really got the name at first try of the PTP uh, followers, uh, I think is crazy, this kind of acronym. Um, mm -hmm. We analyzed, I can tell you, we analyzed 16 submissions of major alcohol industry front groups uh, to this uh, uh, working document consultation. And quite interested, interestingly, we found that um, both Australian and European alcohol industry front groups were pushing in their submissions for the WHO not to engage in the World Trade Organization. So they're arguing that international trade is the mandate for, of course, countries and the WTO mm. and the World Health Organization has nothing 
to do with this. And now listening to you, Paula, um, it becomes even clearer for me uh, why, but I wanted to uh, put this to, to Robin because I could see you were also nodding. You don't seem to be surprised, but can you, can you explain a little bit what the alcohol industry strategy here is? Well, there's an organization known as Codex Alimentarius. In other words, it's about the laws around things you eat uh, or take into your, into your body. And it's an organization that is a joint creation of the World Health Organization and the, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which are both part of what they call the UN family, both agencies that are intergovernmental agencies, um, like the World Health Organization. And that meets every uh, 18 months or so, although I suspect that um, um, uh, that uh, Codex has uh, thoroughly disrupted that um, and um, uh, discusses what it should be recommending to countries with respect to the labeling, uh, among other things, that's only one of its topics, the labeling on food products. And uh, the uh, industry, plays a strong role whenever alcohol comes up in that frame. Um, uh, in the context of the Food and Agricultural Organization, you know, the producers are part of the system, essentially, and, uh, uh, and, and regularly taken in on uh, any, uh, as non-governmental um, participants, even if they're not, not you know, the, the membership of Codex is, is actually uh, from countries. And um, basically, the industry has been pushing very successfully on, uh, on um, two fronts. One is that it's been excluded, that alcoholic beverages are excluded from the, um, being included in the regulations on food. So that in, if you go into um, uh, a grocery store and pick up, uh, in the countries like Australia at least, and pick up the... Um, uh, you, you know, your morning breakfast uh, cereal, it'll list what all the ingredients are. Um, if you pick up a bottle of alcohol, you don't have listed on it what all the ingredients are. You know, uh, it, it, there may be some provision about how much alcohol it has in it, but nothing about what else is there besides the ethanol. Uh, and uh, that's um, a deliberate, uh, something that the industry pushes very hard for is and has been successful in, is this peculiar thing that alcohol, even though it's a, a product that has specific dangers that you might be looking for, doesn't list, have to do the kinds of listing that um, cereal does, essentially, according to the codex, um, uh, the, the, the uh, codex provisions. And secondly, they, there's been a, a um, movement going on now for some years to get some kind of provision about um, uh, alcohol labeling into the codex. Um, and the industry is successfully essentially delayed and delayed and delayed on that so that there's still nothing that's been done. And can I just ask, um, codex alimentarius, how is it related to the World Trade Organization? You explained that it's uh, this uh, common body of the um, WHO and the World Food Program or World Food and Agricultural Organization, but I don't understand yet how it relates to the World Trade Organization. It doesn't. This is about uh, in 
local uh, rules within a within a country, so that it's not, um, you know, it's as is very much the case. You know, the what's called the UN family includes mm -hmm. like the uh, the um, the world uh, uh, tourism body, which is uh, you know happily promoting wine tours, etc., without any consideration at all of is there anything they ought to be telling people along the way. That, so the UN system is quite decentralized in terms of uh, that one particular international intergovernmental body um, is not uh, compelled in any way to pay any attention to another one um, in, in many cases. And, and I think it's, an, it's one of many examples of a strategy the industry uses broadly to try and keep health and public health considerations away from trade. I mean, another arena would be the, the, um, the European Commission. I, I guess when the minimum unit pricing um, regulation was being considered, it took forever to get approval for that. And it was blocked and opposed by industry groups and um, alcohol exporting countries um, because it was like a precedent of allowing health to be, uh, public health to be a rationale for restricting trade. So I think this is a very general important strategy in lots of international arenas to try and say trade is trade, it trumps everything and health has to be looked at somewhere separately and there's no way public health should get in the way of our freedom to sell and export import at whatever price and advertise and all the rest of it. So it really is a very important intersection. Um, and it's, you know, it's so important that um, these are all business and trade practices that have implications for public health. And to ignore them, we, we do it at the peril and at the, of the public interest and public health of member countries. I was going to add that um, this opposition to the WHO being active in other UN organisations also has a precedent around tobacco. So when plain packaging was being discussed in the World Trade Organisation, some of the member countries that were opposed to plain packaging were very, very vocal about the WHO not being involved in those discussions because the plain packaging discussions were one of the only discussions in the WTO I've ever seen where the WHO was very involved. And so it was putting evidence on the record. It was really making the case for why plain packaging was important. And some of the response to the WHO in the World Trade Organization was you have no place here. And so they did not like the idea of this health oriented body having anything to say about trade at all. So this really, I think, is it's not surprising then that the WHO is not seen as having a place to talk about alcohol or probably other things in um, trade forums. Um, I also just wanted to add something about what Robin said about Codex. So we see countries, we see the industry and exporting countries and countries with big alcohol production industries opposing the development of a labelling standard in Codex. And it really loops us back to what we talked about with co-regulation. So we, we basically have member countries who are speaking, if you like, 
or representing alcohol industry interests, opposing an alcohol labelling standard, opposing alcohol labelling regulation at the global level. Mm. And what we're worried about is that's exactly what will happen at the domestic level as well if we let industry co-regulate. Industry will oppose effective labelling regulation. And so Codex, what's happening in Codex, is just very salutary about the way industry will act around alcohol labelling at the domestic level. So they will oppose effective labelling, you know, they will try and impede effective labelling, they will dawdle on the issues. So I I think it is actually a real reminder for us about why co-regulation at the domestic level, so at the country level, is, is not a good idea. Leaving it in the hands of industry is not a good idea. Yeah, this is a very powerful point you're making. Now I understand the whole circle, um, as you have explained, different aspects of um, the arguments you're making in the editorial as well. Um, I wanted to move on and ask um, the following question. You write um, in your editorial that the action plan is a real opportunity to improve the global governance uh, of alcohol. And I, I'm so interested in this because we are discussing now um, some national, maybe even regional experiences uh, specifically with labeling, but also the global level and what we learn at the global level for the national responses here, as you have now explained. So um, maybe we start with uh, uh, Robin. What is it that you hope for in terms of improving the global governance um, of alcohol through a really good action plan? Well, uh, basically, the uh, what the WHO itself has concluded is that you know it's had this um, uh, global strategy for uh, over for twelve years now, um, and things have, if anything, been getting worse from the point of view of alcohol, and that gets wrapped up also into the discussion about uh, alcohol as one of the major risk factors in the uh, in the uh, non-communicable disease thrust that uh, where WHO has a lot of energy on that. Um, and um, so fundamentally, um, my uh, propose, my suggestion and the suggestion of a lot of public health people is that WHO needs to tackle alcohol in um, the same way that it, or in ways that are parallel to the way that it tackled tobacco, essentially. Uh, There is no, alcohol is not included in any international agreement that uh, has to do with public health and public interest, other than, uh, you know, uh, only in the trade agreements, for instance, you know, is alcohol um, mentioned. It's not included in the uh, uh, in the drug treaties uh, that are UN drug treaties, and if you look back at the um, explanation of why it's not included, uh, it certainly fits the the framework of uh, the 1971 convention, um, and the. Uh, the UN official who wrote the explanations around what was going on in that uh, said, uh, you know, was rather embarrassed about the fact that alcohol, that the countries just didn't want to deal with it, you know, essentially, and was excluded. excluded. Yeah. Uh, um, so there is, it's the only 
uh, widely used psychoactive substance that isn't covered by any international agreement that has uh, issues of public health and public interest in it, and uh, rather than being a specialized thing about um, trade or about um, uh, 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 wine tourism or whatever. Um, and so one, uh, one option is to have a framework convention on alcohol control parallel to the frame, framework convention on tobacco control. And several of us have made suggestions about ways in which it would have to be different. Alcohol is not the same drug as tobacco. Um, in, and uh, and uh, there are quite a number of ways in which it would have to be somewhat different. But um, which, and of course the framework convention on tobacco control includes within it a provision that um, decisions on public health you know, the industry should have no part in them, essentially. Um, so it, it, uh, it specifically is um, uh, legislating against co-regulation, co essentially. So that's the fundamental, but it, there are alternatives to that kind of strategy. Um, it doesn't have to be a framework convention on alcohol control, but there needs to be some kind of enforceable international agreement um, that um, provides that governments can, government regulations in some particular country can't be undercut by what some other country does. Tim and Paula, what would you hope for in terms of improving the global governance of alcohol through this um, action plan and everything that might follow afterwards as Robin is alluding to? We can maybe start with Tim. I, I don't know how much more I have to add to what Robin has just eloquently put, because for decades there's been action plans and strategies and I've participated in committees and parallel things at the national level. And I suppose what one is hoping for is more funding, um, more resources, um, perhaps kind of teeth so that there's, there's there, there are real strategies. These aren't all sort of voluntary Op options, but there's some basics to protect um, uh, the information that's put out so that consumers are informed. Um, there's some basic uh, regulations that are required for, for example, not allowing alcohol to become too cheap. Um, so on minimum pricing. So it should encourage effective action and it should make it very transparent and clear who is doing what. So I, th I think that we can still have progress on that. So really measurable policy implementation targets. So how cheap is alcohol in your country? Um, how many hours are you know, stores open? Um, how, is, how are consumers informed? And to really track those things in ways that draw attention to what works, what is effective, and rewards countries that are able to implement effective strategies. But a, 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 a treaty is, without an international treaty with some binding arrangements, I think it's, otherwise it's just sort of a little easy thing to tick off and tokenistic efforts can be made, continue to be made. I think these points are interesting, especially these kinds of blueprints of, as you're saying, um, how cheap is alcohol, uh, how available is it, um, how are children and young people protected from uh, alcohol promotions. 
And uh, it seems to me that this is something that uh, also the WHO regions can lead on and can work with their specific countries a little bit more on than what some of the regions at least are currently doing. Yeah, yeah. part of the problem, as Tim was, um, you know, hinting at, or is is resources. WHO, there the number of international civil servants, you know, in these bodies that are concerned with alcohol, you can count on the fingers of your hand, you know. Yes. Um, the number of folk who are working on tobacco at the international level in these intergovernmental bodies is in the dozens. Yes. The number working on the drugs under the drug treaty is in the hundreds. Yes. Um, alcohol really, you know, we're dealing with tiny resources. It's um, yes. uh, the industry, we don't get to see this, but uh, most of the money that WHO spends on alcohol is money that comes from special projects that a particular country will fund outside the regular budget. Yes. And um, of course, um, it's always easier to talk a country and a government into not spending money than into spending money and the industry has been very successful behind you know closed doors in uh keeping the the resources at the international level really small can i just just add i mean i was sounding very negative it's easy to be pessimistic and i completely agree with what i've been saying there's the resources are minute at the national and international level we're talking about here We've had some recent experience with this idea of documenting effective policies, looking for indicators of what is effective. And in Canada internally, putting the province, provincial and territorial governments, sort of um, putting them against each other, sort of holding them up for account and assessing how well they're doing. And it usually has rubbed people up the wrong way, but also it's been quite effective in with with governments that want to actually do something, it's like providing some standard that's easy to understand, it's um, actionable um, and practical, and they can use it. We're able to show which um, governments were doing poorly, which were doing well. And I think that kind of work is, it is already happening at the international level, but I think we need more of it. And with very hard indicators, well supported with clear evidence of what works. So I, I think that's more like the work of voluntary sort of non-government organizations trying to hold governments to account nationally and internationally. So I, I think there's scope and having seen it work and having seen provincial and territorial governments in some areas at least up their game. It's not to see there's also been a lot of backward movements uh, with some governments making alcohol cheaper and, and more available. So I think there are ways that we can work internationally, the non-government sector can, but it would be wonderful if governments had resources and a strong action plan or treaty, which put more pressure for real, real things to happen. I think this is a great point, um, Tim, this kind of shadow report. Uh, I will get back to you on this because we are discussing this and following the idea to come with a shadow report actually to the WHO governing body meeting in uh, 2022 when they are supposed to adopt the action plan uh, to show some of these uh, things that you have explained now. So if we could do that and can learn from your Canadian experience, that would be awesome. Yeah, and I, and I think it's basic implementation science. It's got to be simple and measurable and transparent and really easy to show that it works. 
So it's it shouldn't be too dense and complicated and too much hard work for people to go and find out because a lot of the bureaucrats that can influence things don't have time to look into all that. We've got to kind of spoon feed them. The evidence yeah. has to be presented and wrapped so beautifully that they can just look at it and think, oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we believe it. We trust the source. And, oh, other people are doing this in my country and it seems to work. So or the international parallel to that could be quite effective, I think. Yeah. And Paula, did you want to add something to the improvements of the global governance of, of alcohol from your perspective? I think um, there's just two things I'd add. And one is that <clears throat> I think this is also a chance. So when WHO opens up these processes, it's also a chance for more cooperation um, to develop between um, NGOs, so international NGOs and domestic NGOs, because what we know from the Framework Tobacco Convention on Tobacco Control Experience is that one of the successes of that treaty was about generating a much stronger civil society and a much more coordinated civil society around tobacco control. And so I think these kinds of processes potentially open up a moment in time where alcohol NGOs become stronger and more united in some ways. And that's a really important part in doing some of the things that Robin and Tim talked about, because this process won't lead to a treaty, won't be the treaty, but this yeah. process might be a step along the way. Yeah. And so if we can actually use this process to strengthen the civil society sector, we've got a stronger civil society basically to be there all the way on those yeah. other steps that need to be taken to get to a treaty. And, and I suppose the other thing for me that is quite an important point is that this is a time for the WHO to try and draw a line in the sand on the industry's involvement in the global governance of alcohol. And I suppose this, you know, partly was my motivation in doing the editorial that I think if the WHO gives the imprimatur to the alcohol industry to continue to be involved in alcohol policy, particularly at the global level, it will really hold back alcohol policy, but it will really hold back moves towards a better instrument for the global governance of alcohol because we will continue to have the alcohol industry in there as part of the discussions. And so I think it's a really important moment for the WHO to take a strong stance um, and to, to exclude the industry, to say the industry is not to be involved. And I think that that will actually, if you like, pay dividends for alcohol policy going forward, both at the national level, but at the global level as well for many years to come. Yeah, thanks for, for this point. This is actually now the transition to my last question because I picked this up in the editorial as well that you write, um, the success of the current work depends on removing the alcohol industry from their position of influence. And now you have already explained the significance of, of this, Paula. Um, I struggle with this a little bit because we are advocating for exactly what you are saying, treating the alcohol industry much more like the tobacco industry. So ending these dialogue meetings, but WHO always falls back on, well, the global alcohol strategy 
gives the industry a role. And so they have to, of course, work with the strategy. Um, and I wanted to ask you, this point that you make in the editorial is, is the meaning then also that we have to ask governments to, you know, edit the global air code strategy, like improve this, remove this as uh, Robin, I think very correctly said, we look at 10 years and the progress is not there or maybe the development is actually in the wrong direction. So it's very clear what uh, the industry is doing and, and, and so on. So is, it what, is this what you are saying that we have to change even the, the global alcohol strategy in the role that it ascribes to the alcohol industry? Or how do you think about this opportunity then to end these dialogues and to remove the alcohol industry? So some of the submissions that I've seen to the consultation process, they don't say, so very few of them basically say anything about a treaty or anything like that. But one of the things that I have seen coming up is that the global alcohol strategy sets the parameters for this action plan. So the action plan can't be in conflict, if you like with the global alcohol strategy. And I think one of the reasons that is coming from the alcohol industry is because of what you're saying, because the global alcohol strategy does allow economic operators some role. And so they're, they're trying to use the global alcohol strategy um, as um, the, really the parameters for what the action plan can do. Um, I think... I think it will be quite hard for the WHO to do anything that in the action plan that directly conflicts with the um, global alcohol strategy. But I suppose I've also thought, well, things don't necessarily have to be carried over expressly. That's one way. Like you don't have to expressly bring things into the action plan. So because if there, if you expressly provide for economic operators to be involved in the action plan, well, you're really, mm. you know, really giving them the green light. So I partly wondered if one way to handle it is um, that the WHO doesn't necessarily go against the global alcohol strategy but doesn't sort of positively endorse the parts of the global alcohol mm. strategy that would give el the alcohol industry a place to play. So I... Look, I'm not sure this is the, the best answer, but I've just been trying to, yeah. as I've seen these parts in the submissions, I've been trying to work out how the WHO will navigate um, this area because this, I think, is going to be the industry's big line that you can't have an action plan that conflicts with yeah. the, the alcohol strategy. I also think probably the, the way to do it is that you really ring fence the industry as much as possible. And so that includes not allowing co-regulation. And you're really trying to, in some ways, run down very quickly the role of the industry in global governance. So um, whilst we might like a, a hard stop, if you like, what you're also looking at is sort of a, a, a major shift that might take a little bit of time, but you're basically moving to a position during the life of the action plan where the industry is not involved. Mm. I, I'd be really interested in what Tim and Robin think because I'm I'm not quite sure about how the WHO will navigate this this space. Mm. Well, if you look in a broader sense, um, there the, the same 
versions of this problem exist also, not only for tobacco and alcohol, but also for um, for uh, foods that are potentially harmful to health, you know. Um, and uh, so the WHO is having to take on this issue, or it needs to take on this kind of issue <clears throat> in other areas. And uh, they had a very bad experience with trying to cooperate with the um, 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 the um, baby milk um, companies, Nestle and so forth, around uh, <clears throat> around um, promoting um, artificial, you know, non-human milk, essentially, rather than mothers feeding their children in uh, with breast milk in uh, in Africa and so forth. Um, and it clearly there, you know, that was a it was a disaster, essentially. The um, <clears throat> what amounted to being a kind of international co-regulatory scheme. Um, so that this is not only an issue for alcohol, um, for WHO, um, in the context of the non-communicable diseases, they've been facing that a little bit also, because yeah. one of the um, risk factors there, along with alcohol, is around um, overeating and, uh, and eating um, foods that are um, harmful to your health. I, I just add, it seems there's the feasible and there's the ideal. I think Paul has outlined some things that might be feasible in the constraints the WHO, in that very difficult space they have to operate, perhaps being silent and not positively endorsing industry involvement. But the ideal and is that, that you know, simply the alcohol industry does not um, have a seat at the table on any of these areas. And it can be guaranteed if they co-regulate alcohol labeling, it won't work um, because it probably will, it'll be delayed or it will never happen. If it happens, the messages will be weak. And if messages get out at all, it'll be hard to see them because they'll be small and it'll be hard, you know, there won't be distinctive font that you know, stands out. It'll be hidden at the back of the bottle. So there's so many ways the industry will sabotage because they don't want it. <laughs> It's very clear when they've had the power to do so, they've just crushed it like they did in the Yukon Territory. Um, but certainly perhaps the best we can hope for feasibly is that this document remains silent and doesn't invite industry co-regulation. Yeah, I, and I think, oh, sorry, I was going to say, I think Tim's point is a really good one. And I mean, also bringing us to the focus again on the co-regulation. So the Offering up the co-regulation as a model goes well beyond what is in the global okay. alcohol strategy. So, in, in fact, the draft working paper advances the position of the alcohol industry vis-a-vis -vis ah. alcohol labelling. So it doesn't attempt to minimise it, which I think is the strategy that the WHO should be should yeah. be pursuing so in in fact they're going completely in the wrong direction with this if the idea is to actually minimize the role of the industry yeah i think this conversation is super helpful we have of course made our analysis of the global alcohol strategy and the last 10 years and and we are saying that it has some flaws inbuilt and of course the flaws come from the political compromise that needed to be made to get the document, as you very well know, in 2010 in the first place. So the concept harmful use of alcohol is really like an open invitation for the alcohol industry to continue blaming the users for this massive harm and uh, the role that the industry um, has received in the global alcohol strategy is the second 
major flaw. And I think it's very helpful to listen to you guys and how you make sense of where the change can come from. And I think ultimately it's also for the countries to suggest um, maybe something after the action plan is adopted where they want to take this conversation. So I think it's, it's super helpful to just discuss it. And uh, as Tim said, uh, work with what is feasible now, what, what is applicable, uh, as you said, Paula, to the action plan and the mandate WHO has for the action plan and then what would be ideal and, and to head towards this more ideal uh, situation going forward. We went through all my questions and I'm, I'm really thankful uh, for this conversation. It was very insightful for me. And then it's just for me to uh, thank you once again um, for taking the time and, and sharing your knowledge and insights uh, with us tonight or today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. For for the conversation. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to sit with all of you and, uh, yeah. and um, you know if we can't be in the same room we can at least be on the same screen. <laughs> That's right. Look Agreed. forward to ABS. Exactly. So thank you everybody. You guys in Australia have a nice day and uh, please in Canada have a nice end of the day. We'll be in touch. <laughs> Great. And you okay. sleep well. Stay yeah. well. Thank bye you. Bye. Okay, bye. bye everyone. Bye. Take care. This podcast episode is part of our coverage of issues surrounding the ongoing development of the Alcohol Action Plan at the World Health Organization. We've already released two blog posts and one previous podcast episode exposing how the alcohol industry works to derail the development of the Alcohol Action Plan using both tobacco industry allies and tobacco industry strategies. In the show notes, you can find the links to all these resources. And of course, you can find the link to the research editorial that we discussed in today's conversation. If you have feedback, questions and any kind of suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear and read from you. My email address is mike.dunbier at movendi.ngo. You can also reach me on Twitter and find my contact details in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Taraka Ranchigoda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dunbier. Our theme music for this episode comes from LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for tuning in and stay well and safe and talk to you soon.